Hello, welcome to NAMI's Brain Power Chronicles. I'm your host, Bill Burnett. It's interesting thinking about just the question of why do we tell stories, right? So maybe you tell a story to somebody because you want to share an adventure with them or maybe make them laugh or maybe you want to uh, comfort somebody. Maybe you want to reassure yourself. Sometimes we tell stories to try to change somebody's beliefs or get them to do something. Or a million other reasons, but they all have one thing in common. They connect us to other people. Mental health conditions separate us from other people. And that's just, uh, it manifests in a lot of different ways. There's so many different diagnoses and, and symptoms and, and ways that these things manifest and different life circumstances. Um, I know from my own experience, I, I live with bipolar disorder and when it was kind of, you know, running amok at its worst, which was <laughs> pretty much all of my 20s and 30s, um, I found myself pushing people away when really I wanted to be close to them. And I, uh, I didn't understand it, but I couldn't control it. And <clears throat> the one thing I did know how to do was build walls in a million different ways, build walls between me and people. And as time went on and my life kind of spun out a little bit more, I, uh, I experienced some sort of uh, judgment and exclusion that comes from stigma. And when that happened, I knew how to build those walls higher and make them stronger. And when eventually, after a lot of years of becoming more and more separated from people, I hit a point where I couldn't bear it anymore. And when I just couldn't stand being walled off from other people, I didn't know how to take those walls down. Today, I do know, and that's why we're here tonight, is we're gonna share stories that connect us. We're gonna hear, people are gonna share some incredibly sad moments, and they're gonna share some really funny things, and they're gonna share a lot of really inspiring, uplifting moments. But throughout all of that, right, both the dark and the light, we will find these stories connecting us with each other. And whatever it is that separates us or makes us feel like we're separated from other people will kind of melt away. And so for this afternoon, right, that's why we tell stories, because those barriers that make us feel like we're alone or there's no hope, we're not connected to anybody, those barriers are gonna fall. So with that in mind, I'm gonna just jump right into the first story. We have eight storytellers. They have been working so hard and I'm gonna kind of speed host because uh, really we need the time for the stories. Please welcome Penny Daniel. It was the end of March. It was a Friday afternoon. And I was driving home. And 
my husband was a bit ahead of me. He had gotten off work earlier, and he had the baby with him. She was about 20 months. Um, and I was trying to call my son. He wasn't answering the phone. Um, and um, my son is 12. And he's, he's got my eyes. All the other kids had green eyes, like their dad. And um, the whole family actually has green eyes. Only my Declan got my eyes, the blue ones. He had, when he was little, he had blonde curls that were just beautiful. I'll tell you a funny story about Declan. 12 is mischievous, right? Um, one day, my husband called me. I was on my way home from work. And he called me, and he was like nonverbal. He was so grumped. And he, and I, I was like, what, what happened? And I couldn't figure out what he was talking about, except that he had slipped and fallen and was quite grumpy about it, and it had something to do with Declan. And so when I got home, I, I tried to figure out what had happened. And it turns out that Declan had uh, taken an entire Costco-size can of Pam and sprayed it all over the wood floor. And then he went and got his hiking socks, the good socks, the wool ones, and went sliding through the house. And the floor, I can't even tell you, it was the living room and the kitchen and the dining room and the entryway, it was everywhere. And it was really slippery. And so that's, that's my Declan, I think it's really funny. But he cleaned it up and, and it's all good, right? Um, so I got home and um, was coming out of the bedroom and I looked down the stairs, and my husband was there holding a piece of paper. And I said, what is that? And he said, it's Declan's permission slip. This is the permission slip that Declan had bothered me the night before to get signed, because it, was, it had to be turned in Friday. And Thursday night, he was all, mom, 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 mom. And I was like, what? <laughs> Can you sign my permission slip? I said, what's it for? He says, it's a... It's a um, field trip to go see mummies. And I was like, ugh. He likes that because 12-year-old boys like mummies, right? And I said, well, does it have to be now? And he said, yes, I have to turn it in on Friday. Otherwise, Mr. Barry's not going to let me go. I said, OK, find me a pen. So he found a pen. And I signed it. I said, make sure and turn it in. I don't want you to miss out on that. I know you'd really enjoy it. So there was my husband standing with a permission slip that was supposed to have been turned in. And in that moment, I realized the house was quiet, and it's never quiet. And I looked at my son's bedroom door, and it was shut, and it's never shut. And I just had that growing feeling of dread for no reason, honestly. Um, but I just did. And I went over, and I knocked on the door, Declan, and I got no answer. And I thought, crud, i got to open the door. I don't like invading my kids' privacy. I think that they need space on their own, right? So for me to open the door was just a violation of my own rules, right? So I opened the door, and I found Declan. He was there, but he wasn't there. And I went to grab him, and he was cold. And your children aren't supposed to be cold. In that moment, 
my whole self was plunged into the bottom of a really black, angry ocean. And I didn't know which way was up. I didn't even have a direction to go. And I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't see, and I couldn't hear. In the days and weeks and months that followed, I had to sort out what the conversation with the coroner told me, because everybody has conversations with coroners about their 12-year-old son. He said, suicide. But I knew my boy, and those two things didn't fit together. What I knew about suicide didn't fit my bouncing boy. People who died by suicide are angry and withdrawn, and they're adults, and they've lost a job or had a terrible relationship breakup. Some terrible thing happened, and they just made a terrible choice, and oftentimes they were angry. But I have this boy who was snuggly and sweet and energetic and liked riding bikes and playing Minecraft. He was a kid. How could suicide fit with my boy? So I went into therapy because <laughs> grief is hard and you need someone to talk to. And I found the Compassionate Friends, which is a bereaved parents group. And there were other suicide parents there. And they told me there were Facebook groups that were support groups. And I joined them. And I started to hear the stories about beautiful children who were intelligent and well-adjusted and athletic and loving and didn't have any problems. And then one day they were gone. And I just couldn't understand it. And it just didn't work. And to be so distressed in your psyche, in your heart, in your soul, about why your child was gone is, is really quite unbearable. And one day, a mom on the group, one of the groups, I don't even know which one, used a term that finally offered me some relief. And it was thought cancer. Thought cancer. If we all understand cancer is your own cells that attack you and sometimes kill you. If your mind could attack you and sometimes kill you, and they're both illness, I finally got to a place where I could overlay that with Declan. He could have been ill. He got ill before. He'd had pneumonia when he was five. He had the usual snotty booger stuff that kids get, right? And he wasn't immune to illness. None of us are. And so, of course, he could get a mental illness. <clears throat> I learned a lot. I, I, I don't settle with just one tidbit of information. I have to know more. Okay, if it was mental illness, what more do I need to know? And I learned there are warning signs, but the warning signs for adults don't actually apply to middle school kids. And middle school kids... That's where most mental illness starts. That's where we should all be looking. And we're so oblivious to it. And we don't want to believe it. And it's terrifying, honestly. It's really terrifying. And we say about people who are despondent and might be suicidal, why don't they reach out for help? If you think for a moment, how hard would that be to say, I want to hurt myself. I want to die. Those aren't the words that are really well received. So we need to start looking and understanding what to look for. I have 
learned how to talk to someone. I had to. What if the, I was in a situation like that before, like where I actually recognized that something was going on and I could actually intervene because suicide is incredibly preventable. Who knew? I did not before. Now I do. Um, I learned that families have predispositions to mental illness. Now I have three kids. I have a big, a middle, and a little. Um, you already met Declan and my little Grace who was with us when we found Declan. And my big... Um, just had a baby last year. So her daughter, my granddaughter, is coming up on her first birthday. And before our little Abby was born, Kira and I sat down and talked. And I said, sweetie, this isn't going to be easy. We don't talk much about our pain. We recognize that we have it, and we don't deny it, and we don't talk much about it. But I said, Kira... You're going to have a baby, and postpartum depression is an issue. And I know moms now who have lost their daughters to that. And I want you to talk to me about this. And I want to have a plan. I want to understand that you understand that you know if you start to sink and if you start to feel like you want to die or that you're useless here, I want you to reach out. I want to have a plan so that you don't experience that and if you do that we get you help and you don't leave me and she cried and she said thank you so much mom because I know we need to talk about this so we made our plan and we we got to welcome Abby into the world and thank God my daughter did not have postpartum depression but we still talk about it we talk about all illnesses and we keep healthy together. Please welcome Sasha Im. Hi. So when I was a kid, I used to see my brother come home from school, drop his backpack onto the floor, get into bed, and sleep, and sleep, and sleep. Around dinner time, I'd have to wake him up. I'd say, oppa, oppa, which is Korean for big brother, wake up. We'd go to the dinner table, sit across from each other. Tom didn't say very much, and his eyes were droopy. His cheeks were bloated from sleep, and after dinner, he would usually go back to bed. His room was close to the kitchen, so I could hear the bed squeaking under his weight. I was nine years old, and I didn't know how babies were made, but I thought I knew everything. And I looked at my mother and said, Tom needs a psychiatrist, because I'd seen psychiatrists on TV shows, and it seemed that everyone who had a lot of problems had a psychiatrist. And clearly, my brother had problems. I mean, no one, except for maybe a cat, should be sleeping this much. And when he wasn't sleeping, he was often angry, really angry. One time, my breath smelled like peanut butter, and he got so mad, he yelled, why didn't you brush your teeth? And he took my head, slammed it against a drawer. I ended up with a black eye. My brother was better than this. Just three years ago, when we were living in Seoul, Korea, he was spending his afternoons playing with his friends, going to birthday parties, doing taekwondo. 
He taught me how to ride a bicycle when I was six. I've been riding a pink and white bicycle with training wheels all summer, and one day he unscrewed the training wheels and he said, you're ready. I said, really? Yeah. And he held my back as I got on the bicycle, and he ran alongside me as I pedaled, and he said, go faster. And I went faster, and I felt a rush as he, put, he took his hand off my back, and I realized I was riding the bicycle on my own. I could hear him behind me cheering me on. Woohoo! You're doing it! Woohoo! But when I told my mom that Tom needs a psychiatrist, she said, your brother's not crazy. He's just going through a phase. And if he sees a psychiatrist, everyone's going to find out, and no one's going to give him a job when he gets older. Many years pass. My brother is 29 when he gets picked up by the police on the side of the road, is sent to a hospital, and sees a psychiatrist for the first time. He's given medications for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I go to the hospital to visit him, and he can barely stand. He's got this droopy hospital gown on him, and he plays with the plastic ID bracelet on his wrist, and his voice is thick and slushy, and he says, I can't take this off. And I look at him, and I think of how our lives had diverged. I was 23 at the time, had graduated from college, had lived in Europe, had bicycled through China, and was about to start a job in New York City, and I thought, how could I be so lucky in life and him so unlucky? How could there be such a gap between the haves and the have-nots in one family? A few years later, I moved to Seattle. My brother continues to struggle, can't find a job, ends up living with our mother. Every time I go to, go to visit them, it seems that he's gotten worse. One summer, he wears an old gray ski jacket, even though it's 80 degrees, and he refuses to take it off. And he looks and smells like a homeless man, like a sour mixture of alcohol and sweat. And he thinks North Korea is going to attack at any moment, which is completely plausible. <laughs> but only he has the secret codes to launch a counterattack. And he's fluent in Korean as and restaurant-level Spanish, you know, those tacos, carnitas, por favor. And it's so crucial that he's left-handed as well because only someone with this unique skill set can stop World War III from happening. That same summer, he goes to Macy's and buys $700 for, um, on jewelry that, for, for um, a woman named Deborah Fox a woman that he hasn't seen since high school. But he's convinced that he's going to you know, propose to her and she's going to say yes. So he finds her work number, leaves several messages uh, on her machine. Um, and when she calls, he's out and I'm the one answering her, the call. Deborah is by now a lawyer in LA and she's completely confused by my brother, brother's call. She thinks they're about a case. And I tell her, no, no, you know, you guys were friends in high school. You know, he just wants to reconnect. And she says, Thomas, Thomas M. I don't, I don't know a Thomas M. And when she says this, I get annoyed because I remember Deborah Fox. You know, I remember that she had long, dark hair, big breasts. She even came to our house one time with a bunch of other kids. And, you know, they were playing video games. 
and my brother got up and gave her his seat, and she started to squeal when her Pac-Man died. New, 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 new. So I remember all this, and she says, no, Thomas Sim doesn't ring a bell. When my brother comes home, I, ne I don't tell him about this conversation. Instead, I point to all of his medicine bottles that are on the bathroom counter, untouched. I say, you need to take these. No, I don't, he says. Yeah, you do. The doctor said it's up to me. Yes, it's up to you to manage your illness. I don't have an illness. You think you know everything. You know nothing about me. I'll take them with you, goddammit. Really? Yes. Okay. Takes all the bottles, unscrews them, proceeds to make two piles of pills. And I'm thinking, holy crap, what are we doing? And he hands one pile of pills to me with a glass of water here. And I, and I look at them and I think, okay, I've done pot. I've done ecstasy. I drink Diet Coke. How can... How bad can this be, right? So I take a pill up to my mouth. He says, wait, wait, what? Let me cut these in half for you. You're small. These might be too much for you. So he takes back all the pills, goes to the kitchen counter, and he hunches over the pills and proceeds to cut them so carefully, it looks like he's performing surgery. Gives the pills back to me. We take them. And after, afterwards, we go for a drive because my brother wants to show me a house that he wants to buy. You know, it doesn't matter that he doesn't have a job or any money. He's seen this house empty for a couple of months, and he's convinced that it's his dream house. So we go there, and it turns out to be a one-story blue ranch. The lawn has turned completely brown. The windows are kind of dirty, but we can see through them. So we look in through the windows, and he points out the living room to me. He's like, look, li living room. And then we circled to the side, and he says, look, the kitchen, the master bedroom, that's where I would put my computer. And I'm standing on my tiptoes, like, taking all this in. And then he points. He's like, look, an extra room for the baby. And I'm like, I am so tired by this point. I'm so tired of his illness and trying to fight the illness, so I start to give in to his version of reality, and all I say is, it is a beautiful house. All it needs are some new carpets. And he says, I'll wait for Deborah to come. She can decorate it any way she wants. And this is why I love my brother, because he's constantly reminding me of what's truly important in life. You know, he just wants a home and a family to love him. He doesn't want to be the next tech billionaire or make the next Instagram to disrupt the world. He still has the codes to North Korea, you know, just in case they attack. But ultimately, his biggest fantasy is to be normal. This past summer, he came to visit me for a week, and I was really nervous about the trip. But he said that, you know, I just, I just want to see where you work and where you play. I just just want to get to know you better. And so I was touched by that. And so when he came, you know, it was Seattle summer, we rode our bicycles, we kayaked, and then my brother saw a flyer for a nightclub with 80s and 90s music, and I was like, oh no, I'm not going to a club with you. I mean, people are going to think we're boyfriend and girlfriend. He's like, oh, come on, it's, it'll, it'll be so much fun, we'll go. So I was like, okay, fine. We get dressed up, we go to the club, 
dance music is poppy and you know it takes him back to like the good old days and my brother goes straight to the dance floor and starts lip syncing to songs like sweet dreams are made of this who am I to disagree and he motions for me to come to the dance floor I'm like oh god no but I go and you know the song changes to I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt, too sexy, it hurts. And so I'm dancing with him. We don't look like boyfriend and girlfriend. We look like an old married couple out on a date night without the kids. Okay, this is how bad it is. And, but my brother is smiling, such a wide smile, and he, his face is beaming. And again, he just reminds me of what's important in life. You know, I just need to create more moments of happiness with him. And I need to let go of the sadness that I've been carrying around since I was a little kid. And I want to get to know my brother as a brother and not someone with a mental illness. I want to get to know him as a friend, as another human being. And ultimately, I just need to let go of the sadness and create more moments of joy because really, it's joy that's going to save us both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sasha. Please welcome your next storyteller, Christiana Obi Sumner. <laughs> My name is Christiana Obi Sumner, descendant of the Obi, a priest class of the Igbo tribe who were trafficked into the Jamaican slave trade and restored as Obeya, black magic practitioners. I want to share with you my true, real, embodied story. But in order to do so, I will need you to walk alongside me in my reality. In the Obeya tradition, there's an ancestral space that we can all access. For me, it's a grove of silver birch trees. Their slender trunks, peeling and knotty, provide me with comfort and protections. The whispers of those who have come before me carried along the wind. Their footsteps of their journeys are imprinted in the soil. My sanctuary was constructed for me by my elders and their loved ones. My family saw me as the gifted one, the one whose home was not within this plane, your plane, but a planeless reality where the ebb and flow of consciousness is not dependent on temporal minutiae. They'd, they'd visit my ancestral space and bring me offering, asking for the interpretation of our forebears to guide them along their path and their way. It wasn't hallucinations, it was revelation. It was an anointment and I lived there exalted in my sanctuary as the Orisha of the Obis. One night, around my 17th year on this plane, I was awoken in my ancestral place to light shining through the grove, intruders, seeking to co-opt my existence. They did not see a sanctuary. They saw a resource indigenous to a young girl 
threateningly aberrant of Euro-Christian dominant society's understanding of spiritual principles, whose being in the world intersected with their construction of schizoaffective disorder and dissociative identity disorder. I hid under the brush and the leaves as they marked the spaces of my grove conspired to remove, to destroy, to colonize. With the force of the Crusades, they marched upon the trees of my ancestors and sought to restore them into specters of Euro-Christian gestalt, psychosis, and justify my entrapment with the destruction of my sanctuary as I violently fought to protect my home symbolized by the red X's that accumulated like the leaves of the silver birch trees as it fell all around me in mourning on the medical records of my oppressor. A red X for calling out to my ancestors for guidance. A red X for reverence to totems of nature, what they call disordered object attachment. A red X for refusing the herbicide they wish for me to willingly administer to the roots of my lineage, my very being obliterating them. Of course I refused to comply, but they wouldn't take no for an answer. So as I was setting up the tripwire to barricade my ancestral grove, they captured me, strapped me into their paddy wagon, and forced me to witness the absolute chemical destruction of my sanctuary as I drove me further and further towards the shores of insanity. When we arrived, they secured me to a weight in the form of prescription bottles and threw me into the ocean of institutionalization. For over seven years, I was marooned, surrounded by people, but utterly alone. I begged for death and waved a white flag, surrendering to the bottles as they tantalized me with the prospect of pulling my spirit down into the depths of nothingness. But my plan to ensure an end to my torture only led to a relocation, a reassignment, instead of a tumultuous fate, gasping for air and hiding on the decks of schooners, a vessel made for those like me who were stuck in the in-between, desperately fighting consumption within the abysmal vortex of the Western psychiatric system, cresting swells like hands, fingers outstretched, palmed, flattened for maximum destruction as it selected who and when your time would come to be pulled down into the unknown shadows of chemical lobotomy. As I was running out of fight and sought to succumb to annihilation, I found myself delivered from the ocean by my ancestors, isolated and disoriented on the shore. The whispers of their encouragement and love rousing me from my delirium and shocking revelations as I reacquainted myself with the cradling sensation of the wind as it danced along my skin. I had forgotten the sensation of freedom from bondage in the form of four-point restraints and Thorazine drips. My ancestors saved me but gave me a warning in a voice I'll never forget. They're trying to kill you. Fight. Fight and come home. Across the fields of self-detox and mindful meditation and over mountains of medical compliance traps and masking neurodivergence for survival, I began the long and arduous pilgrimage back to my ancestral place. Along the way, I began to learn and study the terrain of this land. Why did this happen? Who is right? Where do these practices come from? 
I needed to know myself in relation to my threat, my enemy, the one who seeks to destroy my I am in order to create a you people. And as I crossed over the existential border and I was re-inducted into the universe of my ancestors, I realized the issue was not that my ancestral space was a threat to the other side, but that the others, without the ability to ebb and flow across the conscious divide, have created ghost stories and cautionary religious tales about those who have come before me, my ancestors. They've raised the groves and sanctuaries of Orisha's past, forcing them to acculturate within this plane out of fear and control. The two biggest determinants of human behavior is hope and fear. And while I understand why they may be fearful of me, I remained hopeful I would find my way back home. And I did. And when I found the remnants of my sacred grove and processed the extent of the damage and violence the invaders of this plane did to my grove, I walked away from a decade of a counseling career resolving to never encourage another person to become a refugee of their own spiritual comfort. So as I undergo the process now to mourn, heal, cleanse, and rebuild my sanctuary, I vow to do so by leading with nurturing the roots of my lineage and ancestry through decolonization of mind and body. Even though the toxicity of the chemical lobotomy has irreparably damaged my body and destroyed my brain, which is the impetus for reciting my speech from a script tonight. I know in a fertile and cleansed soil, my ancestors, along with my liberation and power, will return, having grown to the heights of the universe itself. And for that gift of insurmountable strength and wisdom, I only have the societies of this plane, your plane to eternally think. This is my reality. And this may have been hard for some of you who have grappled to understand my reality. The story I share today is one of indigenous spirituality, the phenomenology of colonization and ethnocide of black and indigenous bodies, and historical pathologizing of indigeneity within the Euro-Christian Western medical system. Despite the physical printing of cultural exclusions in the DSM-5 or mandatory cultural competency trainings. What has happened to those upon whose shoulder I stand on in my lineage has been carved into my bones and infused into my blood. The black and brown souls proselytize as toxic rubbish in a stolen land, sequestered into the overcrowded catch basins, carefully constructed for us via prisons, underfunded housing projects, and homeless shelters. Established and forced and perpetuated by a society whose ancestral truth and understanding is rooted in self-aggrandizing hysteria and sustained through the Western dominant cultural gospel, preaching a continuum between white supremacy and anti-blackness. A system that has been humming along from the days of the transatlantic slave trade, the days where my ancestors, the Obies, were bought and sold in Jamaica. In love and hope, I invite you to contemplate how, in our relationships with others, we can impact the very fabric of another life, whether it is emboldening or eradicating. 
I implore you to examine your proximity to the destructive forces that continue to circle around ancestral spaces like mine, like so many birds of prey picking up the scent of dominant cultural nonconformity, leading with cultural humility, loving kindness, and radical acceptance. Perhaps then the groves of those souls who are still on their pilgrimage home from the shores of insanity will not only be standing when they return, but will have thrived into thickets of sanctuary for healing and spiritual protection. I call out to the universe for such a day, a day of salvation and peace. And I call out to all of you to share a horizon of understanding and work alongside me to deconstruct these institutions of oppression. Together, we have the power to design and create the tools that are needed to dismantle the master's house. Thank you. Please welcome our next storyteller, Anita Bernard. I last saw my son when he was 13 years old. It was the day of his bar mitzvah, and I can still see him very clearly. He was absolutely beautiful. He had the voice of a choir boy then, and I remember how he confidently and skillfully chanted from the Torah. And he did it in a way that seemed to signal that everything at that moment was absolutely right in the world. His brilliance and love for words, his sweetness and lovely uniqueness were all proudly and sincerely on display. And I remember thinking that finally, everything was going to be okay for him. But now, as I look back, I honestly wonder if any of it ever even really happened. A week before, his therapist had said to me, Anita, Maxwell is doing better than he ever has. You can rest now. And then I began to lose him. Every single precious part of him. Today, my son is 19 years old, and he should be back in school using the absolutely brilliant mind that he was born with to pursue his very real and possible dreams. And he should be having any number of normal young adult life experiences. But instead, he is lost in a mind that is hijacked by obsessive compulsive disorder. My family has spent years now trying to help him, using every possible plan and, and resource that we can think of, but nothing has helped, and he has continued to get sicker and sicker and to lose more and more of his independence and ability to live a normal life. This past summer, he attempted suicide. Now, how is that possible with everything that we have done to try and save him? Well, the problem has been that there's been one very important missing ingredient, and that is that we have needed him to fight for himself. Now, I also know what it's like to be lost. When I was 19 years old, 
I, like my son, also attempted suicide. And also like him, over time, I would, would continue to struggle and I would be in the hospital several times and go on to struggle many years into adulthood. When I was nine years old, I was raped by my grandfather. And because of the fear and denial of the adults that cared for me, they chose to ignore it. And the ignoring of it left me on my own to try and make sense of what had happened to me. And much like a mental illness, the experience of it actually changed the course of my developing mind and replaced it with a nightmare and an identity of blame of myself and self-doubt and a feeling of shame that would go on to color and shape the course of my life for years in ways that even to this day are sometimes often evident and unfairly impactful. But then when I was 22 years old, I met a therapist who would remain by my side for over 10 years. And with her kindness and guidance, I began to adopt healthy ways to express my anger and anxiety. And I began to let go of years and years of patterns that hurt my mind and body. I began to fight for a better life for myself and I would no longer take responsibility for what had not been my fault. When I was a child, I had no choice but to endure profound um, abusive experiences that had negative repercussions on my life. But this time I did have a choice and I continued to make it over and over and over again. I have chosen to have my incredible marriage of 22 years to a man who has never been anything but kind and loving and devoted to me. And I have chosen to have my two beautiful and talented teenage daughters. And I have chosen to have my incredible, brilliant son who I have loved and have spent years fighting for when his diagnosis of Asperger's brought him ongoing developmental and social challenges. I would fight for him just like I did for myself. And for years, he thrived. And for years, my family was charmed. But in the days after his bar mitzvah, he started coming to me and telling me that he thought that he had an eating disorder because he could not stop thinking about the amount of proteins and carbohydrates he ate in a day. He started exercising constantly and stopped sitting for fear that if he did, he would be wasting energy. He started to lose weight. In time, bathroom visits became hours, and his movements became quick, jerky, and repetitive. Within two years, he could no longer read or write. My home received ongoing damage to cabinets, drawers, light switches, and walls. His behavior changed and was replaced with abusive, angry outbursts, verbal threats, and violence towards my husband, myself, and his two younger sisters. 
There were multiple police visits, hospital stays at children's, violence towards our pets, and the loss of thousands and thousands of dollars due to property damage in our home. My husband and I would take him to therapist after therapist, specialists, psychiatrists, and various other professionals. Two years would pass with this illness destroying my home. And on October 1st, 2014, my husband and I woke up our unsuspecting 15-year-old son at 4 a.m. And with the help of two hired strangers, he was escorted down our driveway, driven to SeaTac Airport, and flown to Utah. A few hours later, we would wake up our daughters and have to explain to them that their brother was gone. All of us were confusingly relieved. The sound of OCD had stopped, and we had survived. In the weeks, months, and years that would pass with my son continuing to struggle and to receive treatment, I would find myself losing time and space for the things that I once enjoyed. I stopped playing the piano, I stopped singing, and I gave up days and days spent in the garden. I would find myself reliving his decline in our home and, and asking myself, why did this happen? I mean, how did this happen? Always searching for an answer and, and never getting one. I would relive desperate conversations with him and, and hear the haunting sounds of his illness and, and hear him singing continuously the song, Carry On My Wayward Son, at the top of his lungs from behind a closed bathroom door while he was trapped by rituals for hours. I would relive his birth and, and the months that I carried him, his entire childhood, always searching for an answer, some kind of an explanation for what could have possibly have led to all of this suffering. I mean, today I am desperately searching for a way to go on with my life, with the reality that my son may never find his way. Exactly how do I do that, though? I mean, how does a mother continue to go on with her life when the person that she loves more than life itself is so ill and unwilling to receive the help and the treatments that he needs? I mean, I know, I know how to save a life. I am a child rape survivor. I, I know what it's like to come back from a place where you were never even given a chance to become a whole person. I, I know what it's like to, to feel like things will never get better and that the repercussions of your circumstances seem insurmountable. I know how to do this. I am living proof that it can be done, so why in God's name haven't I been able to save my son? I am becoming lost in trying to save him. And I can't let that happen. I cannot lose myself. Not again. He must find a way to fight for his own life. 
I have just returned from spending this, the last several weeks with my son in Utah as he has faced his fourth hospital stay, and he's actually still in the hospital tonight. His fourth hospital stay since the beginning of this past summer. My husband and I recently took legal guardianship of him, and we are now in a position to force him to receive the help that he needs. Visiting with him each day, I would see glimmers of the boy that he once was. And in those moments, my fears would clear a path, and I would believe with every part of who I am in the possibility that he may one day somehow eventually find his way. And even though his suffering and mine makes absolutely no sense to me. I believe that it is no mistake that I was chosen to be his mother and put here to wrestle with and champion his ability to find wellness. <clears throat> Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to Don't you cry no more. Please welcome Carolyn Gary. I can't believe I made it here tonight. If I would have had this invitation 15 or 20 years ago, I would not have made it here tonight. It would have gone something like this. Oh my God, I want to go so badly. I really want to go, but it means that I'm going to have to drive my car. And I'm going to have to use the key and put it in the lock. And it's so sharp, it scratches it every time I've seen it happen but I'll just do it really slowly, and I'm not gonna see if anybody's watching. I'm just gonna take my time. And I'm just gonna go on that road, the really smooth one. Oh my gosh, that was a pothole, it was huge. I know it scratched my car, I felt it. I'm just gonna have to pull over and check it and take it to a body shop, but it's the weekend, so I'm not gonna be able to do that, but maybe I could get some touch-up paint and fix it right now, I have to fix it right now. I wouldn't have made it here tonight because it would have taken me about five hours, what should take somebody 15 minutes. I have obsessive compulsive disorder, the real kind, OCD, slang, but I have the real kind. I was really uncomfortable when I was thinking about my story and I would like to invite you to be really uncomfortable with me tonight. 
<laughs> My story started with a pair of Nikes in 1995. I was entering the eighth grade and my mom took my sisters and I to go back to school shopping, which was a really big deal because I'm from a very small town in Texas. It's exactly what you're thinking. We didn't even have a super Walmart, much less a mall. So we went to the next largest city and these Nikes that I wanted, they were maroon and forest green and bright white leather and they were so cool and I could not wait to get them out of the box until I did. Shoes get scuffed. I'd worn shoes all my life. I wasn't new to shoes. But all of a sudden, I had to go home after school every single day and spend an hour cleaning, polishing my shoes with baby wipes. And if those didn't work, soft scrub. My mom found me one day hiding in the closet, in the dark, cleaning my shoes. And she said, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, cleaning my shoes, but I don't, I don't know. And she said, would you maybe not do that anymore? It's kind of gross. And I thought, of course I'm still going to do this. I have to do this. But I told her that I would stop. And I continued cleaning my shoes in secret for years. Fast forward to when I was a senior in high school and I got my first car. I could not wait to get my first car. It was a symbol of freedom and the open road and the ability to drive just for a few minutes away from your parents. And I could take my friends to Sonic with me after school and we'd have such a good time. When I drove my 1999 silver slightly used Ford Taurus off the lot, it was like I was wearing a thousand pair of Nikes. My mom offered to help me pack my car as I prepared to go to college. I'd gotten accepted to Texas Tech University, which was about an eight-hour drive. We packed my car. If you could imagine playing Tetris, but instead of Tetris blocks, you would be using raw eggs. Everyone walked on eggshells around me. It took hours and hours and hours to pack the back seat and trunk of this Ford Taurus and we went on our way and somewhere on the eight hour drive, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that my mom's arm was reaching over to adjust the radio dial. And as she reached over toward me, I couldn't help but have to watch to make sure she was doing it exactly right. Maybe her fingernails would scratch the meticulously polished radio display. And as she reached over, my arms turned toward her. And before I knew it, we spun completely out of control, 360, middle of the highway, full speed. We ran off the road. <clears throat> we were inches from a ditch. I think what sat with me, though, all of these years since then is that the moment I knew that the car stopped and you think, we're okay, we're alive, the car didn't flip, we made it. The first thing that I wanted to do was to walk around my car and inspect it for scratches. 
There was one. It was about two inches long by about a quarter inch in height. And all I could do was think about fixing this scratch. I didn't hug my mom. I didn't ask her if she was okay. And it was as if I valued the material things in my life over myself or the ones that I love. And that's not me. That's not me. And I'm so ashamed. But we kept driving in silence, which I've thought of a lot also. You know, you didn't talk about that kind of stuff if you're from a small town in Texas. If you did, you were weird or crazy. And mentioning it aloud, that's super crazy. Because then people are going to talk about you. And we just kept driving. The next several years, my life continued to spiral completely out of control, just like my car did. I found myself in an abusive relationship, but I loved him because I did not have to drive my car, and I didn't have to stay in my apartment. I stayed with him for a really long time. By that time, See, OCD, it jumps from one thing to another, if you have the kind that I have, and it had manifested in new ways, and one of the ways being my brand new iMac computer, and just like that pair of Nikes, and just like my car, the moment that I got it, I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. See, I believed that if I walked into my bedroom, which is where my computer was, and if I spoke or raised my voice or even breathed, that it would shatter into a million pieces. It wasn't until my boyfriend threatened me with a knife that I said, it's enough, enough. And I drove away from him in that 99 Ford Taurus. It sounds so easy with just words. It's not. But I couldn't drive away from OCD. I never can. But it was the first time that I found myself in the driver's seat of my own life, and it felt really good. And I wanted more of that, so that step was the first step of many on the road to recovery. After a lot of trial and error, a lot of challenges to relationships, thanks to my husband and so many other friends, I found something that worked for me. I found exposure response and prevention therapy, and it's called ERP, and it's basically like going to the gym for your mind. <laughs> and I have a really in-shape mind now. <laughs> I can't believe that I'm here tonight. I wish I could go back and tell myself that I would be. I am now a business owner and a community leader and a wife and a mother to a beautiful two-and-a-half-year-old boy named Marshall. I've upgraded to a 2005 silver Toyota Camry, and it is filled to the brim with goldfish crackers and sticky fingers, and it is perfect.
I think more than anything, I want people who have struggled like I have to know that I see them and that they matter. And that maybe this perceived weakness, this stigma around mental health is actually an incredible source of strength. Just to show up, just to be here has so much more meaning than what it looks. And I want them to be here too. Now, please welcome our next storyteller, Mary Ann Mormon. Urch, clutch, vroom zoom. Urch, clutch, zoom zoom. What is it? Is it an animal? Is it a machine? I didn't know when these strange noises started and I whirled around in my seat to tell and all of my books and my papers fell on the floor. What are you doing upsetting the class? The math teacher didn't like me much anyway, and she really didn't like this. I am just trying to figure out where this noise is coming from. There's no noise. Class, do you hear a noise? I was frozen stone sculpture of humiliation. And the next day, when our church, clutch, Zoom vroom. Startled me again. I was sent to the principal's office where I was demoted to a class of slow learners because clearly I couldn't keep up and I was nothing but a distraction for the other students. I was a loud child, not what my mother had in mind. She was just giving me a tongue licking when she found out I had distracted the school. And I was assigned to bathroom duty for a month. And that meant out came the Drano and the Ajax and the peroxide and a toothbrush that I got to clean so I could keep up with Mama's sanitation expectations. Now, I have stuffed a lot of that eighth grade year in my socks and my stomach and my Easter basket. But I think it's time for it to come out. 1962, I have an invasion of strange noises. Virginians, afraid of, a, of an invasion of Russia, learn to dive under their furniture in case the atomic bomb falls, and fight integration by giving scholarships to students to go to private, segregated schools. My mother loved this. It meant I could go to school right down the street. Oh, I need to keep you close. I can't let you go too far. You never know what'll happen, she said, tightening the noose she kept around my neck. I was the out-of-place, chubby, charity case at a school with no friends. It was chill and cold that fall, but I went home slowly, enjoying the smoke from the burning leaves in people's backyards, and one day, I thought I heard a sound. I thought somebody was calling me. And then it got louder. Man. Man. I couldn't see anybody. There wasn't anybody around. Man. Where are you? I asked. Everywhere, he answered. Who are you? Lorenzo. Let's have some fun. Now, Lorenzo's idea of fun was kind of naughty. 
we broke knickknacks, smashed mailboxes, and got my brother's Bunsen burner from his chemistry set and lit matches so we scorched the kitchen cabinets. And then we went on and took over the bathroom cabinets. But when he had me throw a rock, chunked it right up against my brother's face, and you could see the blood come out through his ears, I was scared. And I told Lorenzo, I can't play with you anymore. And that's when he got mean. Huh. You'll obey me, fat, slop, stupid. So you understand why I had to obey. When he told me he'd burn the house down, he'd slice my father's neck, I put my hand out. He splattered Drano on the back of it, and then I took the hydrogen peroxide and drip, drip, drip. It hurt, burning my flesh, but... It felt kind of right. He told me to bandage it, put Band-Aids on it so nobody could see it, and I did, but the nightly ritual went on, and the Band-Aids were running out of the house, and they are all up my arm, and my mother's going, what? She takes the Band-Aids off. Her turquoise eyes turn flaming red, and it's just, it's just a chemistry accident. Mama, there's nothing wrong. It's just a chemistry accident. Of course, she takes me to a doctor, and the doctor doesn't know what it is. And I'm not telling. I never told. He can't fix it, of course. So he sends us three hours away to the University of Virginia Hospital, where a number of doctors observed me, and then a surgeon operated for about four hours to save the muscles and the tendons and grafted pubescent skin from my butt to the back of my hand. I assume the doctors figured something out because I woke up in a locked psych ward with a huge cast from my fingers all the way up to my elbow. That weekend when my parents came to visit was the first time I heard the word schizophrenia. And a nurse with coil gray hair fed me stelazine and thorazine. And the old folks, the regulars, veterans they call themselves, on the floor taught me how to, how to hold the walls so when I had the stelazine shuffle, I could stand up. And they taught me how to smoke cigarettes because I was the baby. In the, in, the, in the day room, I had my first Marlboro and sat there smoking, watching Carl Sandburg read a poem for John F. Kennedy's inauguration. Completely inundated with pills and slowed down to a crawl and my hands all wrapped up, I was released, went back to school, and Lorenzo was at an all-time general patent fury. He gave me orders. He was mean. He threatened my life. He told me to kill myself. Die. 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 Go to the cabinet. So I went to the bathroom cabinet. I took the pink, the blue, the yellow, the green, the whites. I took all of them and woke up with my neck burning and my throat on fire from the tube going down to pump my stomach and looking up at another doctor with his nose hairs waving to the left and then to the right, asking me questions that I was not going to answer because Lorenzo was there with an entire chorus of laughing characters. Leonardo came. He was cackling like a jackal. And think about it. If I could have just gotten Donatello, I could have made a movie with green turtles and played karate. And that would have gotten me locked up for sure. 
After the overdose, my family was very, very worried. They hovered over me. They wouldn't let my brother tease me about anything. And I didn't have any hand-to-eye coordination. I was a zombie on these pills. I couldn't move. So one night, I was trying to take the milk bottle and put it back in the refrigerator, and I hit the shelf because I couldn't see it, and it crashed. There was glass all over the ground, and I looked up to see my father, and I thought his face was full of fury, but I think it was despair on a father's face. He vowed he was going to find a good psychiatrist for me, not real easy to do, hard in southwestern Virginia, about as hard as it was for my father to admit his child needed help. But by Easter, he did it. He, he found a woman who had moved to the valley, and she was a psychiatrist, and she had time on her calendar, and she worked with me. She changed my meds. She got me standing up and said, I didn't have schizophrenia. I had a mood disorder. Urch, clutch. Zoom from. Lorenzo was still there, but I was getting better. Just, just stay quiet. Just go away. Just go away. I got to school. I went to college. I registered voters during civil rights. I got married. I worked. But it would always happen. Lorenzo would come back, and Lorenzo would be in charge, and I was in hospitals and out of hospitals. And one of the good phases, I moved to Seattle. And it was good. I had friends. I had lovers. I had a business that I started that surprisingly was successful until I didn't like my clients. Now, you do not have to be crazy to not like IBM or Chevron or the Trump Casino Hotel. <laughs> Nor do you have to implode your own business, which I did. And Lorenzo pulled his best trick. You know what a fugue state is? You're walking around, your eyes are open, you're doing things, and you have no idea what you're doing. I came to my senses and found that I was in baggage claim at the airport. It was dark, couldn't see outside. There was nobody there but one guy pushing a broom. But a persistent carousel kept going round and round, and there were cardboard boxes just full and they all had my name on them. In my pocket, there was a boarding pass to Philadelphia, and on the boxes, there was a return address from Pennsylvania. I took one off and opened it. I was surprised. I took a second one off. It had the same thing in it. The first one did, and the third and the... They were Easter baskets. I flew to Philadelphia and bought 500 Easter baskets. I didn't want anybody to find that out, so I put him in the car, went straight to Goodwill, and went home, dropped to my knees, and I call it my face down on the kitchen floor, period, where I was sucking linoleum instead of food or work or sleep. But I had these friends, good friends, who believe that mental illness is just an illness like any other illness, and you go help your friends when they're ill. So they bombarded my house, got me up, got me into therapy, with a therapist who has the patience of the beautific. She tried this technique, she tried that technique. She tried me to get to go to the hospital. I wasn't going to go. I didn't think I could ever come out again. We did this pill, we did that pill. We did cocktails of pills until I stood up. Sometimes I slept. And I told for the first time. I told. I just want Lorenzo to go away. 
She bent over, as therapists can do, so I had to look at her and said, Lorenzo's not going away. You have to learn to live with him. What? I was stupefied. I was dumbfounded. The idea I was going to live with audio hallucinations, urch, clutch, vroom zoom, or what? What was the other choice? I go to therapy. I take my meds. Sometimes I sleep. Urch, clutch, vroom zoom. And Lorenzo does come back. But now I can tell him, shh, you're not in charge. You can visit, but you're not in control. And I can tell the world for the first time, yes, I have a scar on my hand. And in these two hands, I have, I have love. I have a big, bold, sometimes useful life. And if I forget I want to live it, I look on the corner of my desk where I keep one Easter basket. <laughs> Please welcome Sarah Harris. It's March 2006, and I have just gone off my meds. I've been completely med compliant for the last three years, ever since being first diagnosed. The thing is, I want to know if I really need to be on them in the first place. What's this mental health diagnosis anyway? And also the Depakote that I've been taking, which is a heavy-duty anti-seizure medication, makes me feel like a zombie. And I'm not completely sure I'm mentally ill. It's April and I am manic! It's April 17th and I'm not doing so well. I'm sitting in my psychiatrist's office and I'm telling her I don't think I can hold down a job anymore. She's agreeing with me and she's filling out the paperwork to put me on disability because my time is my own and I don't have to go to work every day. My daily routine looks like this. It's about 10.30 in the morning, I've just woken up and I'm super groggy from plying myself with alcohol last night in order to fall asleep. I'm in the car driving. I drive a couple thousand feet to the 7-Eleven on the corner where I'm buying a nice cold can of Starbucks espresso and cream and a pack of Marlboro Lights. Why am I buying this stuff? I'm so hypersensitive to caffeine, I can barely tolerate a cup of decaf, and I don't smoke. <laughs> wait, oh wait, <laughs> I know why I'm buying this stuff, because I'm out of my mind, and I'm self-medicating. From the 7-Eleven, I get back in the car, and I drive directly across the street to Party Time Liquor, where I chat up the guy at the counter, and I buy a vitamin water, you know, because it's healthy. Every morning I buy a different flavor, you know, to mix things up a bit. And then I get back in the car and I drive. The manic energy that is coursing through my body is wreaking havoc on my nervous system. And the smoking is calming me 
and I'm blasting the stereo, and that's calming me, and I'm fixating on one song in particular. Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles, and I play it over and over and over again, and I drive. It's May. I should be hospitalized by now, but I am not. Something sinister has taken over my body. I'm not my usual self at all. In fact, I've lost her. And instead, I'm riding a manic roller coaster. It's a Saturday morning, and I'm doing some laundry downstairs, and all of a sudden, I just start running. Mania is just forcing me to run and run and run and run. Oh, and I think I have healing powers coming out of my hands. And I'm getting really hot from running, so I'm taking off my clothes, because that seems like the logical thing to do. Obviously, because I'm outside, where anyone could see me. Oh, and then my, Chris, my friend Christine is here. I've completely forgotten that we're supposed to go down to Huntington Beach to see this healer that she's been raving about. Oh, and I'm still naked. Christine and I go back up the stairs to my apartment, and the doorbell rings. I put on a robe, and I answer the door. There are two police officers standing there. They're concerned and want to know if I have plans to harm myself or to harm anyone else. In a rare moment of clarity, I realize why they're there and what I've done. And I'm so deeply ashamed. The police officers leave, and then Christine leaves. And I never see her or hear from her again. My friend Kelly is beside herself. She comes over. She leaves her husband, Todd, and their young daughter at home to come sit with me so I won't be alone. But Kelly eventually has to go back home. So I then decide to move every piece of furniture in my apartment into a new and improved location on warp speed as if I'm the Tasmanian devil. And then I lie there lounging on the couch after my hard work, hauling the couch directly across the room, as if I was Norma Desmond, lying on the couch, lounging, and smoking. On my couch in my apartment, I would never smoke a cigarette in my apartment. Well, being manic is kind of stressful, so I decided the perfect thing to do was to go get a massage. I'm lying on the massage table, and as the massage therapist places the first hot stone on my back, I start having a panic attack. Stop the massage, I tell her. I'm grabbing for my purse. I am grabbing the bottle of Seroquel, my atypical antipsychotic, and I'm popping it. The problem is I'm way too far gone for the Seroquel to do any good. Stop the massage and call 911, I tell her. She does. She leaves the room. She comes back in, telling me to put my clothes on. Getting dressed, I'm being escorted back out into the lobby where an EMT is waiting to take my vitals. He's calm and kind, and he's asking me, do you have a medical condition? I lean in and whisper, bipolar. I've never been so humiliated.
I call Kelly, telling her I'm on the way to the ER, and she's telling me that Todd will meet me there. After being seen and released, I'm sitting in the waiting room, racing thoughts running through my mind. Todd is talking to the administrator on duty, and while I can't follow the conversation at all because I'm way too out of it, I can tell he's angry, he's yelling, and he wants answers. And he's being told that this, psych this hospital does not have a psych ward, and it's already 10 o'clock at night. So he's gonna have to do something else, and it's, he's taking me home, and I can't sleep. It's 5 a.m., and I'm in the car driving. I call my cousin on the East Coast, and at 6, I call Todd, waking him up, telling him I need to be taken to urgent care. I'm on it, he says. I'll be he tells me I'll be hearing something soon. At 8, I'm talking to my friend Jen, and she's letting me know that our friend Cynthia will be coming in about an hour to take me to the hospital. Even though it's 6 a.m., I know I need help. By 9, when Cynthia gets there, all bets are off. You see, even though I'm miserable and I know the pain can't continue, being taken anywhere against your will is the worst feeling ever. I'm in the hospital for the weekend on 72-hour lockdown. It's the afternoon, and it's time for us to get our meds. A nurse hollers, meds! And we're expected to just follow after her. The problem is I am so incredibly drugged, I can barely move. If I could get the words out, I would say, stop, slow down and help me, take my arm. But I can't, I can't get the words out. My parents are here visiting, my brother is here too. Oh, my friend Wally is here. Wally is the only non-family member brave enough to enter the psych ward to visit his broken friend and I will never, ever forget it. It's 2010, and uh, I'm now living in Seattle. I've made it through recovery. Four, four long years living under my parents' roof, and I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm talking to a new friend in Seattle who knows I've been sick, and I tell her I had cancer. It was easier than telling her I had a mental illness. It's 2018, and my life is good. Really, really good. I built a life that sustains me, and that brings me great joy. And I wouldn't want to miss another delicious moment of it. Thank you for being here today and listening to my story. When I started my journey, I never thought I'd be sharing my story with a room full, heck, in a theater full of people, as I'm a very private person. But I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm Sarah, and I'm bipolar. Please welcome your next storyteller, Casey Rahm.
I spent the evening of my 23rd birthday, half a world away in the Republic of Georgia, kneeling on the cold tile in front of the toilet and just waiting for the inevitable purge to come. And in this moment, I had two thoughts. The first and most prevalent thought, I am so lucky that my host family has an indoor, Western-style sitting toilet. See, squatty potty doesn't mean the same thing in most of the world that it means here. A lot of places, it's just a hole in the ground. And I was happy that I had something to rest my head on while I waited. My second thought was a thought of immense triumphant relief. And that may seem kind of odd, but it took me a long time to get to that moment. Twelve years earlier, when I was 11 years old, I had a particularly bad bout of food poisoning. I don't remember much except just painful aching in my body and retching and getting to the point where I couldn't even make it to the bathroom and my mom had me sleep on a tarp. And a few days after, when I was recovering, I didn't have much of an appetite. And at first that was normal. And then after a couple weeks, my parents started to notice that I was still pushing my food around the plate instead of eating it. And one time they even caught me hiding it in my pocket so I could flush it down the toilet later. But what they didn't understand was every piece of food was an opportunity to throw up. Everything I put in my mouth felt like a stone as it went down my throat. And food poisoning led me to believe that all food was poison and it was going to make me sick. First, they sent me to the school counselor who suggested that my mom come to school at lunchtime and watch me eat whatever food I had determined was safe that week, a cup of applesauce or a single piece of bread with butter on it. But of course, this wasn't substantial enough and I quickly lost over 40 pounds and my skin became translucent and hung from my bones. And everyone else started to notice too. So they sent me to a therapist. And no matter how many times I told this man that I just didn't want to throw up, he insisted that I was being bullied, that I thought I was fat, or that I had control issues, and that food was the only thing I could control. And none of those things were true. I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted from the experts, so I took to the internet. First I googled, I don't like throwing up. This didn't help too much because nobody likes throwing up. <laughs> I tried a couple more iterations until I landed on, I'm afraid to throw up, because that was what was really true, this intense fear that hit me every time food was on the plate in front of me, that I would go back to that moment when I had food poisoning and I was so weak. And then when I searched that, I found a word that I had never seen before, emetophobia, the fear of vomiting. And not only was it a real thing, but a lot of people have it in varying degrees, some not as intense as mine, but there were a lot of people that were dealing with this day to day, and I found support groups and discussion groups and tips for coping. And I printed some of my favorites, and in the middle of the night, I slid them under my parents' bedroom door because I was too afraid to talk to them about it. Thankfully, they read it, and even though they didn't understand it, they believed me, and they kept calling more experts until they found someone who knew this word a nutritionist, and she put me on a diet plan to get me back to my full health, something kind of like a reverse Weight Watchers. To start off, she said, I want you to eat something half the size of your fist every hour, 
and my fist was a lot smaller then than it is now. So this wasn't too much trouble. A third of a banana, a handful of almonds. And after a few weeks, I realized that I was able to process these things without getting sick. And so it went up to something the whole size of my fist every two hours and so on until I was eating three square meals a day again. And even though I had gone into recovery for my eating disorder, I hadn't gone into recovery from my phobia. Every time I had any inkling of a stomach ache, I would pace around my house, tears streaming down my face, repeating the mantra, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm not going to throw up, I'm not going to throw up, I'm not going to throw up. I went through my parents' fridge every day and tossed anything within a week of its expiration date, washed my hands so much they were raw and red, and I was missing out on a lot of things. I wouldn't go to a friend's house for dinner. Their mom didn't know my rules, but my mom did. And I was skipping out on trips to amusement parks with my friends or out on my family's boat on lovely Lake Chelan where I was lucky enough to grow up. I knew that this was running my life and I wanted it to stop. And I had an opportunity when I was 16 years old. My sister, who's four years older than me, was studying abroad in Prague and she wanted me to come visit. And I immediately thought about all the things that could go wrong. Czech Republic, I thought I was Czechoslovakia. What do they even eat there? Do they have an FDA? <laughs> oh, and the plane, the plane, it was the worst image I could imagine, sandwiched between two strangers in the only seat I could afford at the time, either crying and repeating my mantra, or worse, puking into a bag. But more than I didn't want to throw up, I really didn't want to let my sister down. She helped me get through my eating disorder, and here she was, homesick, and asking me to show up for her. And so I did. I made it onto the plane. I made it to Prague. I made it home, and I was fine. I don't even get motion sick. And the food was great. It made me sleepy, but it didn't make me sick. And then I caught this itch, this travel bug. And as I got older, and my phobia got less and less prevalent in my body, I had the opportunity to travel myself. I took something like a belated gap year at the end of college, and I went to Georgia, that's the country, not the state, to teach English for a year. And when I got there, my phobia was tested regularly. My host family lived in the middle of nowhere, something like the Arkansas of Georgia, and <laughs> There were, there were constant power outages, so the refrigerator was more of a cabinet than a cooler, and there were mice all over because they lived on a farm, and one time I even locked eyes with one in the bread basket, and I decided to wait for the next loaf. And the well water was too much for my weak American stomach, but I knew that I had a choice, the same choice that I had when I was 11. I could risk it, or I could literally starve. And I already knew that starving didn't work for me. And so I risked it, and it was definitely a risk. I don't think I've ever talked about poop so much in my entire life. But every time I got together with my fellow American friends, we would casually discuss where we were on the diarrhea to constipation scale. <laughs> and sometimes I did throw up including that night of my 23rd birthday. And instead of thinking about 
how awful it was going to be. I thought about how lucky I was to have that Western toilet and how much fun I had had earlier when all my American friends and my Georgian host family were over eating a supra, a Georgian feast of all of my favorite dishes and drinking a lot of homemade wine. And I don't know which thing it was that made me sick, but at that moment, I didn't care. All I felt was relief that for the first time in 12 years, as I kneeled there, I was really standing on my own two feet. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. I do want to take just a moment to acknowledge that amazing numbers of men and women have given part or all of their lives to help us through the armed services. So uh, let's just take a moment to applaud our veterans on Veterans Day. Uh, 